Hold it and repeat. Podcasting doesn't have to be hard or time-consuming. In fact, it can actually be the most efficient way to build true connection with your audience. For the first time ever, I'm hosting a free podcasting training to show you exactly how the Peers Project creates successful podcasts for some of Australia's most progressive brands. So in this training, I'm revealing our simple six-step process to creating an engaging podcast from scratch and how to launch your podcast to a hungry audience. Your time is valuable, peers, which is why I'm also revealing all of the secrets and time-saving hacks you'll need to produce your own podcast without the stress. It's time to make 2020 the year you launch your podcast to the world. So head straight to the link in this episode's description and sign up now for our free podcasting training. Now let's get into this episode. This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Life is full of messy twists and turns, but as today's guest reveals, that's exactly what makes it beautiful. I'm thrilled to welcome Kim Pham onto the show today. Kim is the co-founder of Omsom, a new-gen food brand bringing loud Asian flavours into American homes. She's also a 2017 Forbes 30 Under 30 listee. I'm so excited to talk to Kim today about how she started her company, the strategies we can use to get through stressful times, and the beauty of following a messy path. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay. Without further ado, here is my conversation with the incredible Kim Pham. Kim, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. So, you know, you and I connected recently through your sister, actually, Vanessa, who came on the podcast when we were interviewing New York last year. And I mean, look, she was an absolute star. And so I knew I had to have you come on and talk about both of your business and also your last nine years in startup and business. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh my gosh. Yeah, of course. I mean, I hope I can live up to her. She's amazing. She's she's the better of the two. So... <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, I love that. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So hey, everyone. My name is Kim. I am a long time kind of human of the internet, I guess. Like I've been working in startups and venture capital since I was 16. I originally born in Boston, um, moved to New York City to go to university, and then actually spent about four years um, living in Europe and in various cities, working in venture capital. And then after leaving VC, I actually went backpacking through Latin America for eight months. I was a digital nomad for another year after that, freelancing for various venture funds, and then settled back in New York, where I have since um, started OMSOM, of which uh, I'm the co-founder of, alongside my sister Vanessa Pham. We are a new gen Asian food brand bringing proud, loud Asian flavors into American homes um, during a time when they need it the most. Oh, I love that. And I cannot wait to dive deeper into your work and Omson and all the good stuff. But before I do, I like to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, you know, you mentioned that you were grew up in Boston. So what was that time like for you there? What was it like growing up in Boston and how has how you grew up impacted the way that you kind of impacted your life and your career so far? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for context, yeah, I grew up um, in a town just south of Boston. I am the daughter of two Vietnamese refugees. So very much like first-generation Vietnamese-American. My first language was actually Vietnamese before I learned English on entering school. You know, I had like a really, you know, I had like a great childhood, but I it was always kind of marked by being othered. Like the town that we grew up in, I believe, is something like 96% white. So growing up, I think I was, my identity was something I was almost ashamed of, of like, oh my gosh, I'm the only person that looks like me in the entire school or in my grade. And you know, for a long time that carried with it like shame and fear of judgment and fear of being different. Um, And it wasn't really until I went to university that I was like, oh my gosh, like what a power, what a privilege, what a joy it is to be a woman of color, to be a Southeast Asian woman. I, I didn't really fully kind of own that and feel pride and power in that. Um, I think until I left the context that I did growing up in, I mean, no shade, to my childhood and no shade at all to my parents. Like they were just doing the best they could as immigrants and refugees, you know, who wanted to find a safe place to raise their kids. But yeah, I I definitely think for a long time, there was internalized kind of hurt there. Can we talk a little bit more about that? I find it absolutely fascinating. I think so many of us, I mean, myself, I've grappled with a similar thing. So, you know, how did you, how did that make you show up? You know, talk to us about the guilt you felt when, you know, how did you kind of navigate that in the early years? Yeah, I don't think I so much as navigated as I did stumbled through it painfully. <laughs> I'm I'm the oldest daughter as well. I was the first, um, you know, in my household to go to like American school. So a lot of it was just me literally like stumbling along and my parents being like, oh, we're going to try and help you. But, you know, they're pretty hands off. They let us be really independent. And so I've really found refuge in the internet. And that's why I say I'm made of the internet. Like I'm fully of the Zanga, live journal, MySpace era of like finding identity, finding belonging on Tumblr, like just finding others on the internet who are also weirdos, outcasts. Like I was also a bit of like a goth punk kid growing up at like Warp Tour. And like, so I just found belonging in subcultures 
Um, like in school, like I wasn't really a cool kid, but I found like other dorks and nerds like me who were in AP classes. And like we found, I kind of fall, I found smaller tribes and that really helped me form a sense of self, but also um, find resilience. And I think that's really, really carried with me throughout the years. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't perfect. And now I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, well, you know, the internet is even a bigger deal. And now folks have so many ways to find these communities. But in the beginning, it was literally me like using, you know, dial up internet, going on live journal, you know, trying to find other emo kids. <laughs> <laughs> we love that. And I mean, the power of it, the internet, yes. right? It's, it's a way for us to, to connect and, and to really almost, I mean, for you, it was find yourself. Yeah. You know, talk to us a little bit about then, you know, heading out of your, maybe still in your emo years, heading into (laughs) college. You know, I saw that you studied at NYU Business School, marketing and information systems. Where did the decision to study that come from? And talk to us a little bit about those, yeah, those college days. Yeah. So I'm just going to preface this by saying like, I was the world's worst student. So like, was just, I, by the skin of my teeth, graduated college. Like I, I literally, I don't know how. Because I think, so I'll take a step back. I chose NYU because I really wanted to be in New York City. I'm a city girl through and through. And my parents are like, all right, if you're going to go for it, like go for it. Um, And so NYU was literally the only option. I think I applied to six schools, which, you know, my peers were applying to like 12. I think Vanessa probably applied around 12. But I was like, it's NYU or else I'm not going to college in many ways. And so when I got into NYU... My sister, actually, she was like, hey, like, do you know, they have they have like a top tier business school. And in my mind, I was like, oh, cool. Like, I didn't know that. But business school, hmm, that should probably teach me how to start a business. It wasn't until probably my first or second semester that I realized, oh, no, actually, like business school, to my understanding as a freshman was really um, intent on funneling me into investment banking or consulting, which I was just like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I love startups. Like I found startups when I was 16 in high school and I never really looked back. So I was the world's worst student, but I instead focused all of my energy on everything outside of the classroom. So again, like using the internet to find my tribe, like I found other kind of like startup kids through the university program, like outside of the business school. I became one of the founding partners of Dorm Room Fund, which is first round capitals, like in student run investment arm. I started interning right off the bat my freshman fall semester at startups um, in the community and just really realized like, okay, again, like Kim's going to have to do this scrappily. Kim's going to have to do this on her own. And in some ways, like hack my own education because I love NYU and all that it gave me in terms of opportunity and network. But the classes themselves were very, very much finance focused. And I knew that that wasn't that wasn't kind of my end goal. My end goal was to become a founder. And so I wanted to equip myself with those tools. And a lot of them weren't, frankly, found in the classroom. Fascinating. What You mentioned that, you know, you were 16 when you kind of knew that this was that the startup was for you. When, you know, talk to us about that time. I think so many of us get through to college, we even get into the workforce and we're still like, what do we want to do? Like what, you know, what is our, what is my thing? You know, and it, it definitely for me, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't as lucky to, to kind of figure this out early on. I had to try a whole heap of things, but I guess for you, when was that time? Talk to us about that time that you just knew and you were like, yep, yeah, this feels right. Talk to us about, yeah, when that was. Yeah. 
Thank you for that question. So I wish I could be like, oh yeah, like I knew it was very much a combination of like dumb luck, serendipity and like the universe making its weird magic. So essentially I was 16 years old. I I believe it was my junior year of high school and all of my friends were getting jobs, you know, like they were, you know, working at the local Dunkin' Donuts or working at, you know, a coffee shop or something like this. But for some reason, ambitious, you know, 16 year old Kim was like, I really want an internship. And at the time, I was really um, keen on becoming a journalist. So I sent my resume out to all these Boston-based newspapers, magazines, publications, and every single one of them got back to me. And they were like, you're adorable. Like, you're 16. You have no portfolio, no skills. Why the hell are you here? But for some reason, my resume had landed in the hands of a startup in Boston in the CEO's inbox. And he wrote me back and he was like, look, you're, you're 16, you have no skills, but you're ballsy as hell. And you managed to find like my email, like let's have a chat. And I remember this so well, Ben, the CEO of City Squares, he just took a chance on me. And I remember I told my parents, I was like, I'm joining this company. They'd never heard of it. And like, I love my parents, you know, but like, like a lot of Vietnamese immigrants, I think are a little bit more kind of on the risk averse side. And they're like, this company is like, what, 10 people big? Like, what are you doing? (laughs) But I was like, look, I really want to do this. I don't know. It could be fun. I could learn something. And then I joined the team for a summer internship and I literally fell in love. I was like, this is insane. Like I'm sitting next to the CEO. They're letting me sit in on meetings. I'm like working with technology and the internet. Like again, like me and the internet, I just really just fell in love with the autonomy and flexibility that working at a startup could give you. And like, I became hooked, like 16 years old. I was like, this is it. I'm going to go either work at a startup or start a startup. Like, that's it. Yeah, I got quite lucky. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And I love that. It seems to me, Kim, that you've got this almost like a moral, not a moral compass, but like a, you could have, very good understanding of of kind of who you are and what resonates with you. You know, it's almost like this inner confidence. I know you you, you say, oh, it's all, it's all messy and it's all what, you know, whatever. But where do you think that comes from for you? Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's that's a very kind thing to say. I, I, I don't know. I think, you know, part of it, I, I think I was kind of like born with it to some extent. Like I think my father is very much the same way as me. Well, I'm sorry. I'm very much the same way as my father. He's you know, super confident, borderline, a little cocky occasionally. Um, and because I was the firstborn, I think he kind of raised me, you know, you know, really in his, in his form. And so I think I just got a little bit of that kind of self-confidence in him. And then I also just think like, I have a firm belief that one, like the universe has my back, like whatever that means, I'm not going to call it any names, but I, I do believe that like, if I put in the work and I'm kind and I'm intentional and I work hard, like things will work in whatever way they're meant to be. I don't know if that means like my dream job or my dream company, but that like things will, will, will kind of like fit into place if I do the work. And then also, yeah, I don't know. I just, I think growing up, you know, daughter of refugees, oldest of two daughters, like, you know, having to learn English in school and then kind of having to forge my own path in every way. Like you kind of grow a bit of resilience through that journey. And so I'm kind of just like, I'm, I'm really happy with who I am and the weird path that's taken me here. And yeah, I think it served me very well, this resilience. I love that. How can we build resilience? Oh my gosh. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't. I 
love it. You're so real. I don't know. I wish I had like, I'm sure there's amazing, like well-written books. Um, actually probably one, listen to Brene Brown, read Brene Brown. Jeez. I think there's so many trite things I could say of like, you know, fall 10 times, get up 11, like whatever that is. For me, the resilience has just come from like showing up and like pushing doors and, and also choosing the unorthodox path. I will say that. I think consistently I've chosen unorthodox paths and I've done well in them and I've found learnings in all of them. And even though it's been kind of non-traditional, I think resilience came from me like going down a pathless pursuit and still kind of like, you know, making great choices and meeting great people and kind of still finding my way and, and improving kind of on my own experience. And so I'm kind of like, okay, if I can do that with choosing unorthodox paths, then I can kind of keep doing that with whatever. And so, yeah, I don't know. Vanessa asked me this quite a lot and I, and I don't know where it comes from. I think maybe my dad dropped me in the head, you know, when I was younger. And so here I am. Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So let's do a bit of a, more of a deep dive into, you know, your time in Europe. So I saw that you were the head of, of platform at Frontline Ventures in the UK. You know, what, th- this was, I think, one of your earliest experiences out there in the working world, in the startup land. You know, what was that? And you moved countries and cities, you know, what was that time like for you? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Amazing. I have nothing but positive to, to say about it. So basically just to give um, folks context. So I had been working in startups pretty much the entire four years of university and like learned a ton. And as I was graduating, I came to like a a crossroads pretty much. It was like, all right, there's largely three paths. One, it's like go join a startup to start a startup or three, join a venture capital firm and learn more about startups. I hadn't found an opportunity that I loved and that I felt was truly like a culture and passion fit. So that was a no. I didn't quite feel ready enough to start my own company, like just, you know, I was like, oh, I'm still young. Like I still, you know, I want to go 10x my learning. Where can I go do that? And so VC was kind of the kind of natural next step for me. So I then started interviewing with VC funds pretty much throughout the US, like New York, San Francisco, all of your usual suspects, um, and consistently found that I was like, all right, cool. Like I'd be joining like one of many associates or analysts and I wasn't really intrigued by that in the sense that like, okay, cool. I'm kind of walking into an existing setup and there's like a structure there and it's like this two-year program and I'm going to, you know, go in and go out. And and I just didn't love that programmatic kind of sense of it. And through some, again, dumb luck, universe weirdness, I had gotten introduced from a former colleague of mine to um, a partner of a venture firm actually based in Dublin. They were based in Dublin at the time called Frontline Ventures. They hadn't even closed their first fund. It was literally three partners in a room in Dublin, but they were like, Hey, look, like there's a thing happening in the U S and we really want to bring it over to Europe. No one's ever done this before. It's called platform. It's about adding value to your companies after you invest. Like, would this be something that you're interested in doing? And I literally was like, you know what? I'll use this interview as practice. Like I would never. Sure. And then I had a chat with them and just completely fell in love with one. I fell in love with Dublin. I, I flew out there and just really loved, loved the city. And just, it felt really unique and unlike New York city. <laughs> um, I really fell in love with the team. They're really interesting, incredibly humble VCs, which is hard to find humble VCs, super humble folks, but really experienced and incredibly smart. And then I really just frankly fell in love with the role. So I don't know if you know, but platform 
isn't like a traditional investment role. You really focus on the post-investment piece where once you've already invested in companies, you help accelerate their learning curves as founders. And I was like, oh, that's a really cool way for me to learn from smart venture-backed founders. And so, yeah, I, I was like, you know what? I've lived in Europe before. I studied abroad in Prague and then lived in Berlin. And so I was like, you know what, two years, I'm 21. Like I'll never have an opportunity to do this and learn as much and kind of throw myself into something. And so, yeah, like against literally the advice of everyone that I spoke to, I took the role and moved to Dublin. And then shortly thereafter, uh, moved to the, the London office. And it was just like, I kind of see it as my mini MBA, like ton of learning, get my hands dirty, but still kind of get this high level overview of like, what it's like to be a founder from hiring to fundraising, just to building a team. Like I kind of got to see that full spectrum and it was such an incredible learning experience. But then, yeah, I was like, I need to go leave and start my own thing. Otherwise I'm going to chill in venture forever. (laughs) I love that. I think once again, it comes down to your almost like that confidence you had to go, you know what, You stuff it, I'll just move and I'll make happen. And, you know, I, I just love that. What advice would you give to our peers out there listening who maybe they just aren't as confident, they don't have that kind of thing within them to go, yep, I want to go and do this and I'm just going to make it happen. You know, what advice would you give to them? I think it's like start small. Like I don't, I didn't wake up one day being like, I'm going to move to Europe and completely change my life and, you know, work in venture. I think it started with the small everyday choices that I was making as a freshman of like, okay, cool. I'm going to move to New York city. Okay, cool. Like the school thing isn't really working for me. Like what if I just started emailing people that I met on Twitter to see if they wanted to get coffee with me? Okay, cool. I'm, I'm kind of liking these conversations. What if I went to a meetup by myself and like in a topic or in a technology that I'm interested in learning more about. Okay, cool. Like, what if I, and I think it became second nature as I started to continue to flex that muscle of like, push myself out there, push myself out there, push myself out there, that by the time I graduated, I think I was like, all right, cool. Like, I'm in. Like, (laughs) never been to Dublin, never been to Ireland before. Let's do this. Don't know anyone there. But it wasn't overnight at all. It was like a very gradual, just like pushing myself inch by inch outside of my comfort zone. And then that's where I've ended up, kind of where I've ended up. I love that. So valuable. Amazing. So let's talk about then that transition out to actually start your your first company. So, you know, you kind of mentioned you were like, if I just sit here, I'm going to get too comfortable and then, you know, nothing's going to happen. You know, when did that, What at what point was that for you? Was that a couple of years in, you know, talk to us about that. And then what was the kind of thought pattern around, okay, great. Well, if I want to start something of my own, what do I actually do? Right. I wish this was like a super tight and like tweetable story, but it's not. So basically- We love messy. Yeah. <laughs> that's the that's <laughs> theme of this episode. Um, (laughs) serendipitous mess can be beautiful. Accept it. So I had been at frontline for three years and the role was initially supposed to be two years, but again, like I just felt like I was learning a lot and I was building this team and it was such an incredible opportunity and I have no bad things to say about the role. However, I will say with venture capital in general, like I view it as really good as bookends to your career. So it's really great in the beginning of your career when you're like, you're young, you're hungry, you want to learn a lot. VC is great. It's also great at the end of your career when you, you know, you've made your coin, you've sold your business and, you know, you're ready to invest back into the ecosystem and kind of invest in the next generation of entrepreneurs. So I think right there, it's really great. And I think I was reaching pretty much the end of, I would say my 
time adventure where I either, you know, everyone, you know, people are saying like you either piss or get off the pot, right? Like you either invest in venture as your career and you're kind of in this partner path, which was very much actually in discussion with the firm, or you kind of get off and you realize like, okay, cool. I've learned a ton and I'm glad, but now I'm going to kind of use that for my next thing. And so that was, that was it for me. I was like, okay, cool. Three years. I could be, I could be here at this fund forever, not forever, but like, you know, for the rest of my career and be really happy and be on a partner path and, you know, get to invest in the best founders in Europe, or I kind of like jump into risk again. And I think that was, that for me was always it. I was like, I was always going to use my time and venture to de-risk my own entrepreneurial journey. I was not trying to become, you know, a lifelong kind of VC. So yeah, once I think I've realized that around year three, I was like, oh, then it just became really difficult for me to like, not to stick around. And I, you know, I gave the team notice and I was just like, look, no, no shade, no bad blood. I just, I need to go build my own thing. And they were super supportive. The, the hardest thing was frankly leaving London. I, I love London as a city, but I was like, I, I need to go. If I know I'm going to throw my life into a business for the feasible next, you know, five to seven years, I need to go travel. And so my partner at the time and I both left London we went backpacking through Latin America for eight months. And, you know, that time was literally just me kind of exploring and learning and traveling and had some ideas in the back of my head, but nothing really kind of cemented. And it actually wasn't until Vanessa met me down in Bolivia. And she was like, hey, man, I'm hitting, you know, year two at Bain and I kind of want to die. Do you want to <laughs> start something? And I kid you not, Michelle, I have been waiting for that moment for my whole life. Like, I've always known that I want to start a business with her. And again, serendipitously, our paths aligned where she was like, I'm trying to leave my thing. And I was trying to find my next thing. And I was like, all right, great. Like, I don't, I don't know how we can make this happen, but I really want to start a business with you. So she still had to kind of finish up her time at Bain. So when I finished traveling, I was nomadic and kind of was a freelancer for another year and a half while she kind of like sorted out things at Bain. And so then, yeah, like the time just came where, we're both free and we're both ready to kind of throw ourselves into something that we love. Oh, I love it. I just love how you always, yeah, how you always kind of bring it back to that like serendipity and like timing and whatnot. I just think it's so, I just think so many of us struggle to believe that things are actually going to just work out for us. You know, what, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening around that, around just having some sort of like, whatever you want to call it, serendipity, faith, whatever it is in the greater good or that things will actually work out for you. Mm. I will preface this by saying that like luck and serendipity happens more frequently for people with privilege. So I think that's like super, super important to acknowledge. Like, yes, I am a daughter of refugees, but I grew up in a fairly, you know, like middle-class, upper middle-class town. I went to a great university and obviously benefited a lot from the network and, you know, community that I found there. And although like my family doesn't have any generational wealth as, as immigrants, I was able to work in venture and kind of save up a little bit of money before I started my company. So like, that's just really important to acknowledge that like a lot of my kind of room and space and frankly, like mental bandwidth for me to find that serendipity, to find those opportunities was afforded by my privilege. So like, I think a lot of these, you know, like entrepreneur podcasts, a lot of folks are like, quit your job, find the thing that you love and run after it no matter what. And I'm like, yeah, that becomes easy when like your mom and dad have like a chill couple hundred thousand dollars for you to start your thing on. Right. Like 
I think that's super, super important to acknowledge that like, it doesn't matter where you are in that, on that spectrum. Like there are ways that you can find serendipity, but just like do it within your own capability, do it within your own kind of like what you can actually manage to do. But yeah, I mean, beyond that, I think it's like, yeah, definitely privileged helped me out. But I, I also just think like, it just came from showing up and it came from trying to just like knock down doors, even if it wasn't always welcome. <laughs> I would say like in the beginning, when I was in university, I showed up to a ton of meetups where I was consistently the only woman, let alone the only woman of color. Right. And I was just kind of like, I don't know, I'm kind of here to learn about this. Like, and it was really hard. You know, people don't want to talk to you. People ignore you. People are just like, do you work here? Or, you know, like that was difficult, but I just, again, I was just like, all right, like just got to keep going at this and finding the right people. Gosh, I had so many coffee conversations with folks, like literally just DM them on Twitter and was like, I really love this article that you wrote, or I love your thoughts on these topics. And like, can I get you a coffee? I milked the student thing a lot. Yo, if you're still a student, milk that for as long as you can, because people love to help students. But once you're a professional, it's kind of weird. Yeah, I... I wish I had like the perfect formula, but I, I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we love it. I think it's just so valuable, those points you've made. And even in, you know, we've talked about this so many, so much, but, you know, on the show, but the idea of just putting yourself out there and network, I hate the word, but like asking people for coffee and, you know, and connecting with the people and, and whatnot and actually just having those conversations. I mean, I really, I think, Personally, I think that that's just, I'm so great that you, I'm so grateful that you mentioned that because I think that's just such a game changer. Yes. I love it. Well, the one, actually, yeah. the one addendum I'd actually make to that is that I was reaching out to folks before I needed something from them. I think that's a really big thing mm, yes. is like just having a chat to have a chat as opposed to like when you have an ask, I think people are more quickly, you know, it's about building this like long term rapport. And so I was very thankful to, you know, have to, to be able to use the student thing. Right. But like, even now I sometimes will just like, Hey, like let's catch up and have a chat. And I don't have an agenda. I'm literally just there like, yo, what's up. And then it always happens that like down the road, someone hasn't asked for the other and you're willing to extend that goodwill and grace because you've built it up over time. So yeah, networking before you have like an ask is key. Oh, so great. You mentioned that. Love it. Okay. So let's talk about Omasom. So, you know, you and, you and Vanessa were at that place in, you know, at that point where you both thought, okay, let's do something together. Where did the idea for the business come about? I know you had a rebrand, et cetera, but, you know, talk to us about really the last two years. I think there's kind of a handful of ways that businesses are built. So I think one way is, you know, there's like white space in the market and these two, you know, trends are going to intersect and like, this is where we should build the business. I think that's one way in a very valid way in a way that many profitable businesses have been built. And I think there's another way, which is much more kind of rooted in, you know, the founder's individual passions. It's one of those things where like someone wakes up and is like, I refuse to not have this thing exist in the world anymore. Like how I cannot go to sleep until this thing exists. And Omsom is definitely on the, the latter side of that. So, so basically, um, for folks who don't know, Amsam is an Asian food brand. Um, we partner with really kick-ass POC chefs to build what we call starters. And starters are essentially pantry shortcuts that help you cook a specific Asian dish. So really, it's kind of that, that idea came to us out of personal need. Frankly, you know, Vanessa and I were, you know, when we, when we first started a business, we didn't know what it was going to be called and we didn't know what it was going to be. 
So we just spent a lot of time like brainstorming, walking around and just being like, what can we want to throw our lives into for the next five to seven years? And we quickly realized that, you know, as we were walking down the quote unquote ethnic aisle in most mainstream retailers and grocery stores, sorry, we just like were not happy because they just don't feel representative of the changing DNA of this country. Like a lot of the products in there are really whitewashed. They're kind of old school and they're just not loved by anyone. And we're like, that sucks. Like, what if we tried to kind of reimagine this category from scratch? And so Omsam was really born from that desire of like, we're first gen people of color and this country's entire makeup is changing rapidly. And yet this aisle is kind of like this bastion of, you know, very old school, one could say colonized flavor, products, dishes, and that just doesn't feel right. It's 2020, like what the hell? And so, yeah, it was, it was from that, that anger almost. I wouldn't, I don't don't know if Vanessa would call it anger, but for me personally, I was just like not happy. And I really wanted to build a company that better reflects the cultures and communities that these dishes and these flavors come from. And so, yeah, that's how Amsam was born. I love it. And I just think that there is so much love to your brand. You know, I still, I get all your emails and all, and all of that good stuff. And just even that, you know, it's just, you can feel that you can just feel the passion behind it. You know, I guess what advice would you give to our peers out there who maybe they have a great idea and they want to start something, but they're just not too sure if it's the one or, you know, maybe should they keep waiting? What advice would you give on that? So, yeah, that's that's a great question. So I guess I can only speak from my own experience, which is that we weren't really married to one idea. We were married to this concept. We were married to this concept of like, how do we reclaim and celebrate Asian flavors, right? Like that was our North Star. But like what that actually translated into in terms of like business model and product, we were really flexible with. And so once we identified that North Star, it became really easy to go talk to experts in that field, um, to talk to investors who knew the space. And we're just like, hey, we're really crazy about this. Like, what have you seen? What works? What doesn't work? And then by gathering all those inputs and triangulating them with our own kind of like passions and skill sets, we were able to arrive at like, okay, it's going to be called Omsom. It's going to look like, you know, the starter format that we have here. But like we didn't set out to build a starter company. Like that was never the goal, right? It's not even a thing. We made it we made it up. But what we set out to build was a company that reclaimed and celebrated Asian flavors that took and that happened to look like the starter format. So yeah, it's like find that North Star, fall in love with that North Star, but don't get married to an idea. I see a lot of founders like they're like, this is it, and it, it cannot ever change. But I think you're just going to have to iterate with what the market tells you, with what the industry tells you, with what investors tell you. And just over time, be able to get closer to probably what, quote unquote, like a business is. But yeah, it took like a lot of time. Vanessa and I, you know, we were playing around with, you know, we were like, what if we became like an online Asian grocer and sold, you know, like actual ingredients as opposed to the starter format? We were also thinking of like, what if this became like a restaurant or a food hall? What if this was a content platform? Like we just knew that, okay, this is the North Star, but here are all the things that it can look like. And then ultimately over time, and we realized like, okay, talking to folks in the meal kit space, talking to investors who do food tech, talking to consume, like a hundred plus consumers who love Asian food, we were then able to realize that, oh, hey, like actually one of the biggest struggles that folks have with cooking Asian food at home is actually not getting the produce or the vegetables. It's getting the foundational flavor, right? So let's focus on that. And so that's, that's how we kind of were able to pull our starter idea from all of those, you know, inputs. 
What's been kind of your biggest challenge getting this, this off the ground? You know, last year when I was talking to Vanessa, it was called something completely different and you guys were still in the process. And I love that about business. And I just love to have you on now to talk about where it's evolved too. But, you know, yeah, talk to us a little bit about the challenges you faced. Oh my gosh, there's so many. This is Building a business is not for the the so weak hearted. Um, you know this, yeah. girl. Um, and like, I thought I had prepared myself because I was like, oh, I've been working in startups since forever. And then I worked in venture capital. I've lived along it. Like you don't know until you've started it. No. So in some yeah. ways, just start it sooner rather than later. Right. Like you can de-risk and prep all you want, but it's not, it's not going to help. <laughs> you might as well just dive in. <laughs> so my gosh, like I think so many challenges. The biggest I would say is just was like having conviction which is so funny because it's something I really pride myself on as an individual. But like when things get hard and like everyone's saying no, and by everyone, I mean people who are, you know, who we'd be hiring people in our supply chain, like vendors in our supply chain, investors, when we were fundraising, even some of our friends were like, Hey, like you've been working on this, like what's going on? Why haven't you launched? Like it's really difficult to keep having faith in like this, that you're like, I have this vision and I, I think I understand this market and I think I understand this consumer, but I just have to keep going. And I know Vanessa struggled with this as well. And I, I imagine something that every founder has to go through is just like, it's an uphill battle. And like, you don't, like, no one's going to get it until they get it, but it takes so much time to get there. So yeah, just having conviction in, in, in our vision and who we are. And, and yeah, that was really, really difficult, particularly during fundraising. You know, what kind of strategies did you use to kind of get through that time? I'm very thankful that I'm starting a business with my sister <laughs> because like, you know, there's, there's plenty of negatives to starting a business with your sibling, but like one of the positives is that like you can lean on one another, like you can't lean on anyone else. Like she's my blood and she's my best friend. And so I think we had a lot of faith and just having each other. And then also like, frankly, data, like data helped give us more conviction. So, you know, when we first started the business, we ran a small beta, like it, like, you know, maybe like 500 customers or something like that. We like produced a very small run and, but like seeing folks come back to us, even if it wasn't like a quote unquote full scale business, people came back to us with us with like reviews and testimonials. People came back to repurchase people like posted on social media about how this was like one of the best meals that they've made in their own home. Like that gave us enough data to be able to show conviction to our, to, to, to future investors. We're just like, Hey, look, we have this idea and we love it, but we also kind of did some of the legwork to show you that this isn't just like pie in the sky kind of random idea. Like it's something that we deeply believe in. And so, you know, we have the combination of like vision plus grit plus like consumer demand kind of. I love it. Oh, what an equation. So great. So look, oh, I was about to call you Vanessa. I was like, look, <laughs> Vanessa. So look, Kim, um, it's, it, your journey is, is absolutely fascinating to hear. And I, I really appreciate you sharing it with us. And as we come to kind of the close of today's episode, there's just a couple of few questions I've still got left to you. So that is, firstly, what what was your great, what do you believe was your greatest failure to date on this entrepreneurial journey? Oh my gosh. There's so many little failures every day. <laughs> Just like your ego gets completely reckoned by by starting a business. My biggest failure. I mean, I don't know if this it's not a singular moment, but it's assuming that I know everything. Like I I think 
like having resilience and conviction is great in many ways, right? But it also in some ways it makes me difficult to see and accept new opinions, new feedback or criticism because I'm just like, no, this is the right way. Like I, I know what I'm doing. I know this better than anyone else, right? Like that hard-headedness is both like, it's just such a double-edged sword. So I think that was my biggest failure is like there were times throughout our journey where I wasn't listening to the market and didn't move fast enough, or I wasn't listening to really well-earned criticism and constructive feedback from investors, advisors, et cetera, and just like let ego get in the way of bettering this business because I just didn't want to hurt my own feelings or my own personality or not, sorry, not personality, ego. Yeah, I would say that's that's probably the biggest failure and still something that I would you know, definitely grapple with daily. So appreciate it. It's so difficult just when you say it. it's almost like there's no shame anymore. Like you just get burnt down so much and almost the ego just almost has to almost just goes because you just you know it's such a battle but no I, I I love that you shared that with us so look Kim oh my goodness you know nine plus years in business now you know two years in almost into you know your own business and you've received so much recognition for your work you know in 2017 you were featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list and you've been featured and this current your current business has been featured in so many different publications um Forbes Business Insider um, you yourself have also been featured in TechCrunch and just so much more. You know, what are the three key pieces of advice that you'd give to our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you started out? Hmm. Ooh, that's a great, great, great question. Okay. So the first is more of like a reminder and something, yeah, I just wish someone would like during the hard times just continue to tell me, which is that like choosing the path less traveled or less walked is... 99% of the time, super rewarding. Like you will find yourself, you will define yourself in moments of, of trial and tribulations. And I'm, and I just kind of wish I kept getting pushed there of just like, keep, keep making the unorthodox choices, keep taking the risks. They will, they will, they will reward you in ways that you'll never be able to foresee or understand. So if someone thinks it's kind of a little bit crazy, like think about it, but maybe take it. That's the first piece. Second piece of advice is as you climb up, continue to lift others. So I think for a long time, you know, growing up quite young in the startup ecosystem, it was very much a boys club. Like I said, many times would be the only woman, let alone woman of color in a room. And so I became quite conditioned into this, like there can only be, you know, there's only room for so many. And so I prided myself on being like, oh, cool. Like, look at me. I'm in this venture group and I'm the only woman, like, isn't that great? And I didn't once think about like, oh, I actually have a power, a privilege, and perhaps a responsibility to like open doors for other folks who might look like me, whether they're people of color or women, right? Like I wish I had been taught that earlier. It took me a little while to learn that because I was so rooted in this quite like patriarchal sense of like tokenism of like, there can only be one, so it has to be me. So yeah, I think for those listening, like if you are a person of color, if you are a woman or from an underrepresented community in any way, like your success opens doors for others and like view that as like a privilege and a power and a responsibility. And the third piece is probably just like find more mentors. And I don't, and I don't mean that in like the cheesy, like we get together once a month and we go through KPIs. Like I genuinely mean people that you respect in your industry who are willing to vouch for you. And like your homies and like, maybe you hang out, maybe you have beers, like maybe you know each other's kids, like whatever that is, like someone who's willing to vouch for you 
um, in a real way, but also is down to like be informal and help you during the hard times, like so key. Like it took me a while to realize that in my current business. And now I have like one or two folks that I genuinely like I can call during a tough time. Like I think a lot of folks have mentors for good times, but don't want to talk to them in bad times. That's not, that for me is not a sort of mentor that I think is really helpful for me long-term. Like I have a mentor who I can just text and be like, Hey, like there's some really tough decisions I have to make as a business. And instead of her being like, Oh, like this is a bad reflection on Kim fam as a founder or a bad reflection on Amsam. She's down, like get into the trenches with me, troubleshoot it and provide like a really helpful, honest kind of um, second opinion. So yeah, find, find those folks. I don't know if mentor is the right word, but like advocate, ally, someone who can help you, but also be down to be a homie. Oh, I love it. We're going to find our homies. Yeah. Love it. Look, so Kim, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for the amazing work you've done and that you're doing for showing up constantly and, you know, keeping it messy, keeping it real. I think you just remind us all that, you know, especially us, you know, women of colour, females out there, that, you know, we can achieve what we want to and but it doesn't have to be linear and, and it doesn't have to be perfect and so for that we really appreciate yeah. you. Yeah oh my gosh thank you so much Michelle for for both like your kind words but also your incredibly thoughtful questions I haven't had to think like this in a while um, so this was such a fun conversation and yeah like hopefully it's helpful and, and genuinely like again I do believe in helping folks however so if you have any questions like hit me up on kimfam.org my email's there like genuinely down to have conversations with anyone who just wants to grab 30 minutes, like I'm only here because folks took a chance on me when I didn't have a name or I didn't have a, a, a founder title. I'm genuinely down as, as long as my schedule allows it. So please, if, if I'm helpful and if I can be helpful in any way, let me know. Amazing. I love it. And so the final question is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? What a philosophical question. <laughs> When you say like what I'm passionate about, I'm assuming you don't mean like me right now in Amsam, but just like in general, right? Just in general. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure someone would say like, oh, if you love what you do, you never have to work a day again. That's bullshit. That's not what, that's not my answer. The value is like one, getting to shape the future that you want to live in. This world right now is messed up on many in many, many, many ways, right? And it can feel so intimidating and scary and d- discouraging. But I feel like when you work on what you're passionate about, no matter what it is, no matter what field, like you are chipping away at a better future. And I'm like, that's what I'm excited about. Like I'm, the reason I'm choosing Amsam right now is because like I want to decolonize, reclaim and celebrate Asian cultures. But like down the road, like what does that mean for the liberation of POC communities? Like what does that mean for the way that content and culture is created? Like that is what I'm excited by. And so that for me is so immensely valuable, even when the days are really brutal. And yes, like I, I work like, even though I love what I do, it's hard damn work. And I know Michelle, you are nodding along. So I know it's true for you too. Just, just knowing that like, I'm working on something I deeply care about. I'm working towards something better for all of us. And so, yeah, that's, that's what keeps me up. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I love it. Kim, ladies and gentlemen, oh my goodness, we have had a blast. Where can people learn more about you and Omsom? Yeah, for sure. So, yep, it's kimfam.org, just my first and last name.org. My email's there. So, again, if you have any questions, holler at your girl. Um, and then in terms of Omsom, it's spelled exactly as it sounds, O-M-S-O-M.com. Um, we currently only ship in the U.S., 
but we're shelf stable and can ship to all 50 states. So if you are interested in kind of spicing up your your cooking or bringing some new Southeast Asian flavors to your life, check us out. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much, Kim. Oh my goodness, so amazing. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.